Welcome to The Paulist, a daily comics analysis podcast. Uh, we are daily because we want to read widely, and we do analysis because we want to dig deep. I'm Paul. I'm a literacy researcher and an English teacher, and I'm on Twitter at Tuplai, T-W-O-P-L-A-I, and you can find, review, and share The Paulist on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Um, today, our Tuesday trade paperback is Pretty Deadly Volume 2, so we'll be talking about that work, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, uh, art by Emma Rios, colors by Jordi Belair, letters by Clayton Cowles, from Image Comics. And um, I had to apologize again for the sound quality, uh, and I may speak at an um, <laughs> a unradio-friendly speed, because I want to make sure that I fit this in in the time frame that I've set for myself between... Um, you know, taking my quick lunch break and picking up my daughter in the midst of all the dissertation work and stuff like that that I'm doing. Uh, and I just want to thank you for listening and being here with me. Uh, you know, this is a solo podcast, and um, I reflect sometimes on the the fact that I am a, 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 an individual talking um, to to myself, uh, so to speak. Um, but I, I just really want to kind of underscore that I you know, one of the things that I do is I'm a literacy researcher and a way that I think about reading and um, including how we as comics readers read is that is that none of us truly reads in isolation, that in some sense we are part of some kind of ecology that we bring to our, our reading experience. And so when I do this podcast, um, I speak kind of in conversation with um, other uh, you know other sources that I'm learning from, including other podcasts that that are out there, um, including works of comic scholarship, including works of um, other kinds of uh, literary theory and stuff like that that I've been exposed to and that I try to continue to expose myself to. Uh, I try to read in conversation with the comics themselves, with things that I learn and hear from creators. And in fact, um, John Suntress's Word Balloon podcast recently had a conversation. I think it just came out yesterday, maybe, with Emma Rios, one of the creators of the book that we're talking about today. And I think you should that you should check that out. Um, it's also why I've so valued um, podcasts like um, The Comics Alternative, podcasts like Robots from Tomorrow, podcasts like O Comics, Orbital and Conversation, because uh, this is what I love about the comics medium. It's a community of people who are um, so passionate, so very passionate about what we read and talk about that um, they form kind of an ecology of passionate people. And that to me is a pretty remarkable thing to be part of. Um, I yeah so um so you know it you know i even though i am the part of <laughs> like mark marion's wtf podcast that i tend to want to skip the the sort of monologue in the beginning to get to the conversation i realized that's my whole podcast you know you, you have to skip through the whole thing um, but if you are here and you're listening i really appreciate you uh being here and listening and i and i do hope that you will reach out to me uh hit me up on twitter at tuplai t-w-o-p-l-a-i um, and uh and let me know that you're here uh, by the way, this week Saga's back, uh, which is exciting, and it, it reminded me when I was tweeting about um, a previous episode, like early on in this uh, podcast, that I did um, an analysis episode about Saga Volume, whatever the last one was, five, six, four, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was six, and um, and actually, I get I get these statistics from SoundCloud, and Saga that that Saga episode, as well as my episode about Shutter Volume Four. Uh, were some of the lowest, lowest, uh, uh, you know, downloads or, or or plays or whatever out of all my episodes, and I realized that um, 
you know, it's because everybody reviews issue ones and everybody reviews volume ones. But, you know, when you're, when you're reading, when you're talking about volume three or volume six, you know, you have to assume that the person is, has read that far. And, uh, you know, when I see something that's about like, oh, issue 33 and I haven't been keeping up, I'm like, oh, I'm out, you know. <laughs> and so I realized that like, yo, this is where I really get obscure, where I sort of discount myself. But that's the very thing that I actually want this to to do you know this podcast to be about digging deep and and reading with a certain kind of like discipline and rigor and you know what if you haven't read this far yet um even in pretty deadly you haven't read volume one let alone read volume two that's okay you know this this show is gonna be here and you can come back and listen to it when you're ready but you know i i don't know if you experience this but i often experience when i when i'm you know into the weeds uh, or into the deep cuts or into the um you know, again, the the fifth volume of Chew or something. Like, I'm re- I really want to hear somebody talk about this. You know, nobody's reviewing Morning Glories number forty six, and I'm just like, man, what's a, you know, I, <laughs> I I just I want to talk to somebody about this, and I don't know, maybe I'm doing my small part to serve that need for somebody. But anyway, like I said, part you know, we read as part of an ecology, and I think even when we're encountering a text, we're always encountering it as part of a conversation. And I I think it's really interesting for me to think about that in light of Pretty Deadly Volume 2. Because, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. It took me several times to get past the first issue of the first volume of Pretty Deadly. Um, I uh, have crazy love for Kelly Sue DeConnick as a writer. Kind of been following her since, you know, Avengers were assembling and disassembling and stuff like that. And um, I I, I just, uh, just... a lot of respect for her work and 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 really cool to see kind of her her growth and her trajectory as a writer um and at at the same time uh you know when when she began her her captain marvel run i was there was excited about it and i think when emma rios brought her artistic sensibilities and i hadn't been familiar with them before i hadn't read the doctor strange stuff and and um i think they did an osborne thing or something um you know, I, I just felt like this collaboration was perfect because there's something in Rios's art and in DeConnick's writing that um, have this um, quality of being both, you know, the two words that come to mind for me are, are lyrical, uh, this kind of languid quality, um, especially when they can write stuff that is sort of the most, that speaks the most from their own, their own hearts rather than, <laughs> rather than just the for hire stuff. Um, uh, but but the first word is, is is lyrical to me. There's this lyrical quality, this this literary quality to it, um, uh, a poetic quality. Uh, but but at the same time, the other word that comes to mind is steely. There's this kind of strength that is um, unpretentious. Uh, you know, not frontin', not unafraid to be tender, but but incredibly strong, um, incredibly resilient, and so. Um, I have only a few pieces of original art. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a big collector. Um, but I, one of the pieces of original art that I have hanging on my wall right in front of my, my computer screens is um, one of the pages from Captain Marvel drawn by Emma Rios. And, um, and it's, you know, it's sort of one of the last scenes of the first volume where she's sort of flying a plane down. And, and to me, that page has all of the, both visually and in terms of where it is in the story, in the narrative, that sense of being um, incredibly lyrical uh, a moment as well as sort of steely in the strength and resolve of the character. Um, so, big fan of them. <laughs> Should have been a sucker for Pretty Deadly. 
kept trying to read it and and I think I kept trying to read it in the state probably a similar state as what I'm reading recording these podcasts which is like very late at night after a long day of you know wearing many hats and and being utterly exhausted and so I kept falling asleep reading pretty deadly and not really understanding what the heck was going on um and you know actually kind of a reflection of um there's a few interviews that I've read of um of both creators, actually, especially in the transition between the first and second arcs, where um, DeConnick in particular talks a little bit about, uh, you know, hearing feedback from readers that although, you know, sort of all kinds of critical acclaim for Pretty Deadly Volume 1, all kinds of fans, all kinds of, you know, um, serious love for that book, you know, some feedback from readers that were kind of like this, there's something impenetrable, somewhat obscure, somewhat... Um, uh, you know, I, I really don't know how to crack the shell of what's going on in the story. And so Deconic, uh, I think, was intentional in um, not only um, Bitch Planet, but in in, uh, in Volume 2 of trying to remove that, um, that uh, you know, kind of uh, fog uh, to, to make it a little bit more clear and simple and powerful. Um, does she accomplish that in this book, in this volume? I don't know, <laughs> but I, I, I keep not finishing my story. Basically, had a lot of trouble getting into um, Pretty Deadly Volume 1, but when I was able to read it with my full attention and sort of, you know, my best uh, English major hat on, uh, you know, loved it, absolutely loved it. Um, and so, you know, the, that quality that they have as a team of being literary without becoming prosaic, you know, literary but with not just kind of, you know, narrative with pictures, <laughs> with illustrations, but very visually, you know, kind of embedded. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think it's because they draw from literary sources and inspirations, but also from visual sources and inspirations, you know. And so a lot of the things that are, are there in volume uh, uh, one, obviously carried over into volume two, those dark fantasy elements, the, the sort of natural world with this world garden going on you know the the embodiment of death and and war and courage um and then sort of drawing from westerns and war films uh visually speaking um you know the sergio leone um kind of uh western uh you know uh sensibility aesthetic cinematography whatever that's sort of also a little bit kurosawa like um and then there's there's kind of the blending of history and fantasy there's um there's the songs that play a role and you know in the first book there's this uh, kind of idea of these these cantares de ciego like the uh, sort of blind beggar songs but uh, but here i think it's transplanted into a different family a different community a different context and, and maybe more of the um uh the the songs of spirituals and the songs of mourning um and then you know the we have because we're talking about fantasy uh because we're talking about these um characters of of uh sort of mythic proportions uh the same characters that are continuing into a new setting right and and it's it, you know it's kind of becoming your I, I think the how how did how would volume one you know when you read the end of it which had a feeling of being very satisfying and complete how would it translate into a volume two and i think what's now they they've revealed is planned to be a volume uh, three and four and then a, a 3.5 in there with different thematic foci but you can see now the carryover what's going to carry over what's going to be part of the whole thing what's continuing on you know the bunny and the butterfly framing uh sissies become death uh, and then and then you know there's all these pairings of characters uh, uh sarah who's who's sort of grown older here and foxy uh Ginny and alice johnny coyote and molly 
And of course, back is elements like the role of songs and things like that. And then we're introduced in this story to, or reintroduced to Sarah's children and grandchildren, um, her granddaughter, Clara, and, um, and her daughter, Vereen, who's Clara's mother, um, and then Cyrus in the trenches with the, the soldiers that he's with. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about the details. I'm referring to the details of the book without explaining them all. And so if you haven't read, uh, again, I urge you to read it. It's um, I rarely talk about a book that I'm not also recommending. And maybe some people are like, Paul, are you ever critical about books? Are you? Um, I am. There's a lot of comics I don't like, but I, I, there's so many comics that I do like and I want to explore that I'd rather spend the time talking about what's interesting about the ones that are interesting. So uh, that's what we're here for. Anyway, um, a lot of a lot of new elements, and I think uh, no small thing that were transplanted from the westerns uh, kind of kind of setting and context into the the World War One context, and that 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 context from from the first book has has sort of been transmuted into the warm orange hues that Jordi Belair brings to take Sarah's kind of um, uh, uh, you know uh, prairie. Uh, setting into what's now you know what was the the wild frontier in a sense has become home has become a sense of warmth and hearth and um and then in the opening scene you know right from the outset they're laying out i think a, the theme or the thematic elements that i think are you know at least from the first two volumes the themes of the whole thing the themes of the whole work are pretty deadly but then specified also for this this volume and 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 for me namely i think the themes are the lessons of ecology i think it's so cool that there is this um uh, this motif of the uh, the bunny and the the butterfly and the the tree and the garden and da, 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 da. <laughs> which I mean you know come on like <laughs> that's the most sort of literary standby set of um, motifs that you could possibly have but but I think that the the thematic uh, you know nerves that that the story keeps on hitting of how these beautiful beautiful things uh, by necessity pass through chaos you know that that that's an essential part of their nature that things must look like they're falling apart that they're uh, even reaching sort of the point of death or collapse um, before they can come out the other side into something else Um, I think that is a a theme that you know (laughs) explains why when I'm reading pretty deadly volume one issues one and two and maybe a lot into issue three I have no really clear idea of what's going on or who I'm rooting for or who are the good who are the good and who are the bad uh, I think the point being that um, there's actually a whole lot of chaos like these bees that um, the, the the bunny and the butterfly are, are looking at. Uh, there's a whole lot of chaos and madness that, um, as it says, oh, nonsense, butterfly, just because you cannot see order doesn't mean it isn't there. Um, there is a sort of... Uh, de- design is the wrong word because it's not predetermined. Um, uh, you know, these. The, I think the, in the cosmology of the story, there's no referee for all the events that happen, um, which leaves, I think, a lot of agency for for characters, for them, for 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 humans, us as humans, to to decide and to have a hand in 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 our own stories. But um, but I think there is this sense that um, you know uh, there is a kind of order, there is a kind of um, a necessary you know, chaos, destruction, death, death-faced Ginny, <laughs> heads being sliced off and, and um, missiles blowing up. Uh, maybe necessary is the wrong word, but it is something that we pass through in order to arrive to the other side. Um, 
But in this volume, I think the twist on that theme is that in war, right, which kind of this volume is about, um, something drives you into that chaos. And we start off thinking about it being courage, right? But it winds up being, I think this is a statement, uh, it winds up being fear. That fear turns you into something else. You know, fear slash courage makes you dive headlong into that death and into that chaos. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Right? Is it, you know, I think, you know, part part of the point of the book, as as you know from the sort of hammering on your head, I mean, not in a excessive way, but but I think the point is driven home that good thing is a bad thing and a bad thing is a good thing, you know, such as when, you know, again, in this kind of beginning pages of one of the issues, the bear defeats the bee, but it's kind of a matter of perspective, right? Did the bear win or did the bee win? Uh, that's kind of a matter of how you're looking at it. Um, but this idea of fear driving us into war, you know, this conversation with the soldiers um, in the trenches and, and the Frenchman says to Cyrus, you know, you're, you are the knight errant then you seek your destiny, you know, and then the other soldier, I forget his name, but he says, yeah, right. Like, like this is some damn adventure. And Cyrus says, I'm like them horses. I'm a runner. And, you know, it's the sort of like soldiers in trench philosophizing about life and death, right? And, and destiny and whether you can run from it. But it's this idea of, of running by, by fear um, from the things that, um, things that uh, may, may, may be your ought to's in your life. And yet because of fear, um, in one of the back matters, uh, 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 pieces of one of the issues, uh, DeConnick writes about um, hearing the story of how, um, I forgot what they were called, but they were sort of some kind of white flower or something like that. Um, and they were women who basically went around um, giving or attaching these white flowers or something like that to the lapels of young men that they saw who were not serving in war as a sort of scarlet letter, you know, a kind of shaming of them for why aren't you sacrificing and giving your life for this for this war, you know, a war that, as as DeConnick points out in that same piece, you know, was taking as many lives as two two September 11ths a day for four years. You know, that was the sort of death toll of, of the Great War. And and so, what is it that drives us to war into that chaos? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or is it like war is an absolutely terrible thing, the worst thing that um, within which somehow we still arrive at the end with something beautiful, something um, pretty, uh, and yet pretty deadly. Uh, see what I did. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's interesting to me too, reading about DeConnick and Rios's writing process. You know, this isn't sort of a full script or, or even sort of rough Marvel style or whatever that, you know, as they talk about it, DeConnick sort of writes a, uh, Rios calls it a literary script, you know, and then they pass back and forth a bajillion emails to kind of talks about how um rios could sell her original art as she did to me <laughs> but um but DeConnick can't sell her original scripts because then she'd have to have like amassed together this you know thing that she wrote and then this thing that rios wrote back and their back and forth emails planning how these five pages or these three pages would come together and i think that's so um fascinating because 
the there's a kind of chaos right there's a kind of like messiness that they pass through in order to arrive at what is i think in, in the end a very complete and a very powerful and a very coherent story and i think that's similar to the sense of reading it sometimes and and what did they succeed in volume two in, in achieving more clarity than volume one eh, not not a ton i mean <laughs> to me i think it's still kind of all hinges on the same characters and us being familiar with the dualities between the characters and the relationship between them and so yeah, more that you banked on number on volume one sort of getting you over the hump of of non-understanding and and getting you invested right away in volume two so yeah I, yeah it's 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 achieved it's successful but i, I mean i think i hope it's clear from what i'm saying that i i honestly you know kelly studioconic i don't i i i appreciate the sentiment but i think you actually are doing something so rich that it's worth the initial confusion uh to get past it um Really, the point I think I was most confused was when in, in this book, Johnny Coyote kind of, Johnny Coyote and Alice have it out. And I was sort of like, what's going on? And I think, I don't know if that was all laid out to me clearly. I think in retrospect, I can guess that thematically what the purpose is, you know. But um, but uh, but back to the point that I was talking about, like DeConnick uh, writes again, I think in, in the back matter or an interview or something about how at the same time that she's doing this, she's in a writer's room for a TV show, seeing how, you know, a, a room full of, of creatives come together and break stories by putting things on index cards. And that totally makes sense because you have a sort of chaos of ideas, uh, a sort of like um, a cacophony of of things that you have to thread together into a coherent sense in a tv show and sometimes not that well done right but sometimes when done well it's 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 beautiful it's glorious storytelling but it's a storytelling that doesn't come from a single auteur that involves a kind of collaboration that requires this this kind of chaos before it becomes orderly um, and requires the material things to make that happen and so I love the picture in my head of DeConnick and Rios kind of back and forth of the index cards that are the many pieces of the story that ultimately have to come together and yet like I said I think there's a there's a heart to it there's a sort of um, a warm center this gravity that's pulling it of of um, of thematic um, you know purpose Um, you know this is why Pretty Deadly is being narrated by the ghost of a bunny and a butterfly. It's sort of the classic you know, beauty that passes through the the tomb or the the womb, the tomb womb of of a metamorphosis. Um, uh, that's what a butterfly is, you know. Um, and 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 I think it's important to to kind of think about how this theme un, un, unpacks or unfolds because it can be a fairly trite theme um you know this idea that you you get through a lot of messiness and chaos and then you arrive ultimately at something i mean that's pretty much every story and and so that's why i think it's so important to contextualize the um the particulars of the story you know that we're talking about war and we're we're telling a story and i think this is where um i don't know these two creators these four creators whatever the, the whole team is 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 in a sense departing from their inspirations and in a sense drawing from their inspirations because i think you know a sort of um aspect a trope of the western is the the, the lone individual hero i think there are many stories especially in the leonian and in the kurosawa samurai vein that show that that lone individual is in fact not alone that there is an ecology that surrounds them and so uh, it's so pleasing to me so satisfying so important so vital to the the lifeblood of the story that all these characters you know the reapers work in pairs um 
that the story is built on several pairs of relationships. Um, I kind of named them off at the beginning. That when the like a pair encounters a one, you have a sort of a triangulation of relationships, you know. But Clara and Vereen encountering Foxy, Foxy and Sarah, um, you know, uh, meeting Clara, you know, Ginny and Alice, Johnny and Molly, you know, this kind of. Um, uh, you know, every everybody seen in relation to uh, not just a foil, but because it's not just about the contrast, but about how you you come to exist in the in in these relationships. And I think even Sissy taking on the role of death is is not about um, you know a little bit different from uh, I think Gaiman's Sandman. Uh, not about your individual embodiment of this power, uh, but really your. <laughs> your um negotiations back and forth with other parties who are um who have their own uh agendas and their own purposes in mind and your wrangling of all these you know various reapers and all of these people of consequence that are within your circle um you know end up becoming the role that you play in the universe and obviously for sissy quite a significant one uh, you know obviously for these these characters who are um representations or embodiments of death and war and courage and fear or whatever you know hugely consequential um i guess that's the thing though that always gets me is that um you know it's like you you have to do this to tell a story you have to personify these large forces with people because it's about the relationships between people that we're that we that we you know care about a story um but but I think sometimes there is a, a kind of reductive thing that happens if you talk about war and you've, you, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's a kind of vanity for us, for all of us. And, and, I don't, and I'm not accusing uh, the creators of this, but there's a vanity for all of us in thinking that we can talk about something as vast as war, as vast as death um, by, you know, having it um, embodied in even even in an ecology or a community. Uh, rather than an individual, but having it personified, I think sometimes we um, uh, maybe by necessity uh, cheapen something or oversimplify something or gloss over something. Um, but that uh, that to me is not a fault of the creators in this story. I think that is a fault of our the limits of our imagination. Uh, finally, <laughs> because now I have to go pick up my daughter <laughs> from kindergarten. Uh, these are the realities of a daily podcast. Um, I, I have like uh, a whole bunch more. I'm flipping through the pages now and, and um, hating myself for putting myself in this terrible circumstance of trying to talk about a book that I have so much to say about and uh, and leaving myself no time to do so. Um, and, and so, hey, hit me up on Twitter at Tupli at gmail.com. Tell me your thoughts and, and, and what, you, um, what takes you have about uh, pretty deadly volume two but um i think ultimately where i come to is um uh in in an interview in um uh, i think the daily dot kelly kelly pseudoconic talks about it's just talking with the interviewer about sondheim and and film ratings or something like that rating films reviewers rating films and um but but she says um i wrote down this quote that's so much a part of how i value a cultural experience do i take it in and i'm done or am i still thinking about it you know, two days from now or whatever. And I think, um, the effect, the net effect of reading pretty deadly, if you can get past the barrier of, of the, you know, WTF is going on. <laughs> That's my second mention of the, the 
the uh, initials WTF today uh, for entirely different purposes. Um, if you can get past the WTF of what is going on to to let the the themes and the characters um, wend their way into your soul, they leave you. Um, I I don't know. I don't know about you. They leave me um, grasping. I think for a sense of um, uh, a sense of eternity in the in the kind of minuteness of my daily decisions. Uh, what I mean by that is that I think that there's a a way that their work is about. Um, oh, geez, I didn't get to talk about Emma Rios and um, Sergio Leone and the close-up shots of the eyes and the, all the all of the innovations and all of the um, the craft of what she's doing with panels, especially the inventiveness and the experimental stuff that she applies to this book. Um, man, I feel like I just want to do a whole another podcast. Can I just start this over and do better? Um, but um, yeah, th- there's there's so much in the way that this kind of storytelling uh, boils down to moments, to glances, to um, decisions. Uh, you know how consequential. Um, uh, I guess how consequential our our time is, how consequential our relationships are, how consequential because we belong to these ecologies and to network these networks. Um, the uh, the things that we go after, the things that we pursue, the things that we chase, um, and yet how much, and this is why the idea of ecology matters, by the way, and yet how much, so, so much of that is out of our hands that, you know, uh, uh, great creatures can move heaven and earth to get Cyrus back to Sarah, but sort of the point is not that um, all of our, all of our intentions are fulfilled. And what ecology means is ecology means that there is an overall system or there is a larger whatever um you know there's a larger universe of um of of um angels and demons or gods or whatever forces at work um and as as well as a larger system and um and group of institutions uh in influencing our lives and yet the also concurrently simultaneously what ecology means is that every individual being uh every sentient or non-sentient element of that ecology also plays a role you know like that's what ecology means it's the chaos effect of a butterfly flapping its wings uh having you know some role to play in a in a um in a tsunami uh you know hundreds of miles away that we do things that matter and yet also uh none of us can can weigh ourselves down completely with the responsibility of all that we do because ultimately we all belong to a larger system something bigger than us and um and that uh i think makes me want to um take really good care of my daughter (laughs) and know that the world is bigger than what i can do to take care of her know that we all you know will will face death (laughs) uh maybe in the form of a um a skull-faced uh sword wielding um very uh stylish figure (laughs) but um but that but that that doesn't mean that um today i should not um stop podcasting and go get my daughter um now that she's done with lunch okay well thank you for sitting through this rambly (laughs) half hour of the ball list tomorrow is wednesday i'll talk about my pull list i'll talk about um 
new comic book day stuff and I'm going to talk about something on the web although it's soon going to be published by first second so I honestly I don't even know if it's still on the web um, but it's Jason Shiga's Demon originally a web comic um, and uh, and then uh, Thursday our throwback will be Jack Kirby and New Gods Artist Edition okay thanks for tuning in and uh, take care <laughs>